to another episode of Three Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters, who've been doing this for way too long, talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorn, and I'm joined by... Tony. All of these lines across my face tell you the story of who I am. So many stories of where I've been and how I got to where I am. But these stories don't mean anything. And you got no one to tell them to. It's true. I was made for you. Breaking out the Brandy Carlisle there. Yes! That is why we are friends, Thor McGee. <laughs> that is why. That and is one of my favorite. My, that's my, my best favorite friends. Relatively recent songs. songs. Yeah, that's the great, great song. Well, we're not friends because I can sing, because I couldn't have carried that tune if it had handles. <laughs> I had to stop myself from breaking in. I don't want to ruin Dave's flow. Oh, dude, we, we got to start it. That one time we're going to have a big so, the intro. So, you can do a duet, but I'm going to log out. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but the story and the connection here this week is we're talking about how does your story relate to major character changes. So, you know, the story... As it goes, the things you go through, the, the things that change you along the road. Well, when you're the DM running a narrative, well, there's all sorts of things that could change your characters. You know, maybe it's stuff you drive. Maybe it's stuff the players drive. But how do you handle mechanical character changes driven by or related to the narrative of the story? And I think especially when we're going off book. So it's one thing when a character adds a level. It's another thing when a character changes a subclass or maybe totally changes a class, which is kind of what we're talking about here. All right, this question comes from listener Jared. Jared, thank you very much for writing in. We really appreciate you listening and asking us questions. So Jared's question, how do you approach big changes in your players? I know in one of the source books, it talks about changing a subclass after a big event. And there is the spell reincarnate, which revivifies, that's a tongue twister, which revivifies a humanoid as a different race. So I guess I'm asking, how do you approach a player asking you to change their subclass or all they had was reincarnate to revive a player? How do you play this? Um, yeah. Uh, so let me see. Uh, he's asking for us three specifically. I, you know, and it's, this is a question inspired by the discussion we recently had about alignment, specifically the bit about a vengeance paladin. And uh, Jared's brain immediately responded, so he gets vengeance. What then? So, um, you know, this is a great question. I've actually had a player, uh, a player character that was a samurai back in second edition when the samurai was a human only class, very much like the uh, very much like the paladin was. Actually, I think it was a fighter kit more than a class. And he got reincarnated as a um, satyr, little two-legged <laughs> goat-hoofed guy. And that was one issue. Like, we're, we're, that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. You know, what do you do when that happens? Uh, we've also had some players pick up some classes in our games, where it's more like maybe they picked up a class in this or that, but that could be handled differently. Certainly, I think, you know, our, our paladin, Sir Morton, he might one day want to switch subclasses. In general, how do you guys handle character changes that reflect narrative changes in your games? I guess it really depends what's going on. You have to keep with the continuity. If somebody wants to change race or class entirely, in terms of class, 5e gives you a little bit more flexibility because you could just take a level in that class. Mm. 4e, 
I'm always circling back to that nightmare. Then you were basically getting proficiencies that built into another subclass that kind of made you in that class. You had your foot in the door for that, but you were never quite as cool. And one of the problems is when you're in a long-term campaign, you're playing a character for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. You want to try some other stuff. So you kind of want to have the opportunity, but maybe you don't want to scrap your character. Yeah, I think I think if it makes sense for the character, like the character that you've created, if it makes sense in their story arc, even if it's some crazy wild swing, that's cool. If it just is coming from someone is tired of playing something, I think there are other ways to handle that without just completely ruining a really cool character concept that you have just for the sake of like kind of, I'm bored with this, I want to play something else. Like you can always... Uh, Thorne, like we're doing in Call of Cthulhu, you said, all right, this is a good chance if you guys want to play someone else because you're all going to be in the sanitarium for a month or something. (laughs) Right. So if you want to try something on for 30 days, this is the time for it. But yeah, I think if it makes sense for the character is the the biggest, the, the first thing. That's the most important. Yeah. And I feel like, well, you know, on the one hand, let's talk about what's really cool about this, which is that. In the game, in any role-playing game, D&D especially, as cool as all the stuff you get through the book is, nothing is ever quite as cool as the thing that breaks the rules. Huh. Right? Mm. I mean, when you do some big narrative thing, and here I would point to probably Cassidus, which we've talked about many times. Cassidus was Tony's wizard who got involved with the Necronomicon and Vecna and Great Old One and Outer Powers and a very Cthulhu-esque D&D campaign I was running. And he basically... Wait, got wait, so- wait, 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 wait. Thor. Cthulhu-like D&D? It sounds That's familiar, right? So out, right, right. That's so out of character for you. Or isn't it? Yeah, Please yeah, continue. No, I, Please I, I continue. like big, unfathomable monsters. There we go. I like big goo, and I cannot lie. But, <laughs> so Cassidus, he he followed a path that was kind of foreshadowed that, no, he, he read the books you're not supposed to read, and he went to the places you're not supposed to go. And he was game for it, and I kept rolling stuff out, and eventually I rolled out the okay you're far enough down the rabbit hole. Here you go, Dorothy. Here, here's here, here you go, Alice. Here's the here's here's the big bite of mushroom. And he turned into a larva mage with a whole yeah. different set. I mean, he kept his class, but he got like a whole different set of powers and different things happened. That was something I put on him to drive home that, okay, you've crossed the Rubicon now. You have gone so far down the Lovecraftian rabbit hole that you are now part of part mythos. And I did that to drive that home. Something that Tony has you know, never quite let me live down from a you know character life point of view, but at the same time turned into a really cool story. He did some really neat things there. Similarly, in this game we're in, Tony Erasmus has done this himself, where I gave you guys a deck of many things, you got some wishes, and Erasmus took a very similar kind of change, making himself part Storm Giant in order to kind of like reflect that in the narrative. Just you wanted to do it, right? That was kind of his dream. Well. You know, you think about it, and we're talking about uh, tropes there, you know, like uh, you like the Cthulhu stuff. I'm playing a wizard with a giant hat. Like, this is so shocking. But, this is um, me and you. Yeah, this is definitely the, the – I do this kind of campaign. You do the you do the stereotypical wizard. We come together. The only question is what kind of wizard. Does he have a star robe or does he have, like, the blue and silver? He, I like to think he has a lot of range going on. Well, mechanically speaking, you're playing a wizard. Well, what's wrong with being a wizard? Well, you're squishy. How do I prevent that? You're a storm giant. That's fantastic. That just nips that in the butt. My only point with, you know, not letting you live that down with turning me into an undead pile of bugs is that who can ever say in a game, I've done anything worse to their character than turning them into a pile of undead bugs. (laughs) I'd love to hear that story if I did that. I mean, maybe I did it. I can't remember. 
It's like Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt. Oh, I wish I was salt. I was. But Tony, even going even further with the Erasmus thing, as we talked about too, it kind of it worked out in such a cool way, like so perfectly because of the Storm King's Thunder campaign. And then you had this giant NPC that you had to have with the party. And then you're like, oh, my God, Erasmus, done. You know, he's this (laughs) character that keeps coming through. And without him having become this storm giant in another campaign, it would have never occurred to you. And that's just it's one of those really cool synchronicities almost, you know. So, yeah, I would try to tie that in for some kind of plot advantage for you as a DM if you're put in that kind of position. Is there another NPC that this character can now take the role of? So those are the good things of this, right? I mean, in, in, in specifically, Jared's question is about the, the idea of a paladin turning into a vengeance paladin or an oathbreaker paladin, which I think we brought up at one point, which is a really interesting idea, too, and can be a lot of fun so long as the player goes for it. And what would happen there? Like, so, I mean, it, it is mentioned in the books a little bit, but you kind of have to get to the DMG and put it together how you do it. There is a kit you can plop on your count paladin that he is an Oathbreaker. You strip him of his of his goody paladin stuff, you give him his evil paladin, Oathbreaker paladin stuff, and he has a whole different set of mechanics that now go along with the narrative of however he lost his favor, you know, however he fell from grace. And that kind of thing is really cool, and they make for really memorable campaigns. On the flip side, I'm going to point to Zhang a little bit here, because in a similar situation, Tony had given... So Zhang's the bugbear battlemaster built around abusing reach and pole arms and battlemaster stuff. And Tony gave us the ability to change races. And I kind of resisted that. Well, I didn't use it, bottom line. And, and, and neither did Dave's character, uh, who, who actually eventually pulled the aggro for us not being in disguise when we should have been. But it could have been either one of us. <laughs> <laughs> either one of us could have been Leroy Jenkins in this situation. But... You know, the reason I pushed back on it was because Zhang was a strong character concept that relied on his race as it was. And now I'd have to ask myself, in that situation where I've put together a combo, is it interesting to me as a player to change that combo for something relatively small? And I would also have to ask, like, how would I have rolled with it with Tony, like Tony did with me, if he made him a larval mate, like a larval character or something crazy like that? On the one hand, Tony's character, I felt like, went down. Like, Tony knew he was playing with forces beyond you know, that were not safe. So I felt like there was a little bit, there was some plot opportunity there to do something like that. Yeah. The character, I mean, the character kept being like, there, there, there was warnings in there. Like here's a book you really shouldn't read wink, you know? I mean, so there was some build up to it there. So, you know, you knew something was coming, but with Zhang, like the, and and this is the, the downside for players can be in fifth edition, your mechanics can fit together very tightly. You could have, if you're optimizing your character, you're optimizing your character through these choices. So if you force a change on a player, you can break his build, which for some players is no problem at all. Some players are totally cool with breaking their build for narrative purposes. They didn't have a build. They just threw some stuff together. And the other thing is you can have times when a player is pushing for it because they want to break the build in their favor. You know, maybe they're looking for this narrative change, like Tony kind of just mentioned, because they want to make up for a downside in the character. Like, I mean, there's all sorts of story reasons Erasmus became that storm giant. It was you, you had done a good job of building his character background that he would want to do it. We talked about it. But now you mentioned, you know, well, there's a mechanical advantage, too. Hey, I'm no longer a squishy, squishy wizard. I'm a giant wizard and I'm as tough as the fighters. And that's the other the, the other side of it, you know. 
from the storytelling point of view, nothing's as cool as breaking the rules. From the mechanical point of view, breaking the rules can sometimes have unintended consequences. So you got to balance these things if you're going to do something like this. You know, I think it all depends in the end. I think what you were just hitting on is who's playing the character, who's the player at the table, and what's happening. Because for that very reason, um, I don't think that, you know, uh, someone doesn't come to the table with a build and they just threw some things together necessarily. I think I, for instance, myself as a player, I come to the table with a character that has a very specific build, a very specific concept as to what they're going to be. But then, then the story happens. So if it's making sense or if things happen in the world, I'll give two examples here. One with Beam, where I have been recently, uh, because of certain things happening within uh, the Woodstock Wanderers campaign, have been starting to commune with uh, Lethander, Dawa, as I call him in the campaign world, about, in essence, taking up the sword and becoming a paladin. In essence, saying, hey, I wonder if I should take a dip in Pali as a cleric, which is it's a it's a controversial statement for a lot of times if you're on the boards but it was playing into the story and thorne and i were kind of going back and forth with it a little bit him having to play god and me having to play my character you know totally but it serious was playing which, god i would never do that yeah it god was a wasn't my which I was starting to even if it broke the the efficiency of being a life domain cleric if it made a cool story for me that matters a whole lot more. The second point I would make is with Roderick, who is a very strong concept as to who he is. And then I had the Ring of Winters, which is, I believe, a chaotic evil artifact. Uh, All the good artifacts mistaken. are. Yes. It is rumored to be, yes. So, in essence, in the last bits of the campaign, when I placed it on my finger to, you know, because we were fighting Sarkaloth the Kraken, that is a choice the character made in the story that is going to force certain things to be placed on him. I am completely aware of that as a player, so I'm really cool with rolling with that because that allows for either you got this now wildly powerful evil bard rolling around, or I have some really cool redemption story with my twin sister or something. So I think that there's a lot to that, not just so it depends if your focus as a player is on story and narrative, uh, you're probably going to roll a little bit more with that as opposed to if you have a uh, a person who's really into uh, having the most maximized, optimized build for their character, which is cool. But if you if things happen or you force something on them because of things that happen in the game, that's where that could possibly go wrong. So that goes back to kind of know your table, right? Know who you're who you're playing with here and what you can kind of get away with. Goes back to the eight player types. We've talked about DMing for the eight player types and the actor in this case, you DM differently than the power gamer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a distinct difference between you as the DM have brought some type of change in the character, whether it may be mechanically and story-wise, they may feel deviates from their vision of the character or the player themselves did something that there was inherently risks involved and they may feel that their character was ruined. In either case, mm. you'd want to try to avoid that, but in the case where the character did something, well, you know, you had to look back at that and say, was there any warnings? Was this really just, this hit them out of the blue? And what are we really talking? I've seen some players get really upset over some things, and I'm like, really? Like, like this is, <laughs> like, 
you know, the pizza's on the ceiling over this. Like, okay. You know, but uh, it, at least with that case, they had agency with it versus I just imposed. I came down to hit you with a ray of light and said, I, I've now ruined your character concept. But then again, I've killed characters and I've just killed them with giant blocks. And then they're rolling with another character. So, you know, it, it's all relative. <laughs> Well, you know, I think carrying over from what we talked about last week or a couple weeks ago with the villains, the real question is, are you just making the game more interesting for the player or are you, quote unquote, ruining the character for that player? You don't want to do something. And it kind of doesn't even matter what you're, you know, this is something where I've matured on because there's a time where I would have said, look, you know, I'm the boss here. I'm the DM. I'm God. You're rolling with it. And in retrospect now, after, you know, playing for 20 years or so. I think you want, yeah, don't just think, you definitely do not want to ruin the game for players based on the story twist you want to have. Whether that means you're introducing something with a villain that is going to be too terrible and ruin the game for them in that way, or it means that you're introducing a character change that's going to ruin it for them in that way. So, you know, you want to try to make sure that whatever, if you're going to break the rules and do something like a big, cool character transformation, like changing a subclass or changing a class or changing a race, make sure they're going to be down with it. Whether you know that intuitively because you know them well, or because you've talked about it with them and you're all on the same page. You got to make sure you do that because you don't want to ruin the game by introducing this twist because you can absolutely introduce a twist that you were very excited for. I've done this. You can be really excited for the twist you're going to introduce and you introduce it and your player characters don't like what it does to their character and boom, your game is just basically wrecked. So that's what you got to be careful about. Now, here's the... Here's one of the things, because uh, I, I was saying to you guys when we saw Jared's question that I thought this would be cool because of our most recent Curse of Strahd session that we had. So anybody who doesn't want it, uh, spoilers, uh, click out for the next five minutes or so and then come on back or something, right? Uh, <laughs> and any of my players, if any of the players are listening, uh, like the two DMs that I'm speaking with right now who are playing, uh, you know, compartmentalize this shit. So we're in the Amber Temple still. Okay, and the party has started to play around with touching the amber sarcophagi. And as anyone knows in the books, what's happening is these are dark powers that are attempting to uh, corrupt these people by providing gifts with at a price. Uh, the price can be all kinds of things, like our cleric turned into literally a walking corpse. Um, so our barbarian and our paladin, surprisingly. Uh, both accepted dark gifts in our last session. I know um, what you're talking about, brother. And <laughs> here's the here's what's funny. And Tony and I were talking about this on the side, and I'll only give away a certain amount. But um, what happened is when this is occurring, you are getting the you are no matter what you do, if you accept the gift, you are getting the flaw, whatever it might be, whether it's a psychological flaw, whether it's a physical flaw, whatever. What you aren't necessarily getting is the corruption, and that is a charisma check. And it's not a hard one. So our cleric passed the charisma check. Fine, no problem. Our pally and our barbarian both failed, which I couldn't have, I couldn't have written it. Uh, so what happens is uh, there's supposed to be an immediate shift to an evil alignment with that. I played it in the back and I spoke privately to, to both players about like, I don't, I don't like the idea of an immediate shift because I don't think things work that way. I think that's stupid, but the idea of it's happening, that darkness is creeping inside and you're starting to shift to that. Let's see where this goes. There's Tony and Chris both went for it. 
to the point where we're still kicking it around, but Chris might very well with Sir Scar be taking the Oathbreaker subclass and shifting over right now. We're still playing around as to exactly how it will, what what we're going to do with it. Uh, But he was, and I knew he would, he was immediately game. He was like, ooh, this and it's a redemption story and this, because I know him, right? Tony, on the other hand, was super cool about it, but a little bit in a different way because we have some stuff that we're playing with with that. Uh, but you know, but that's a that's a perfect example where it was not, it was it wasn't the DM or the player really, it was literally the dice, but in such an awesome way, you know, where that failed save really changed the story drastically, and not forever necessarily, but. Let's see. Let's see what happens, you know, as they're running around touching all of these uh, Amber sarcophagi. So this is the perfect time for the Hollywood Hulk Hogan twist, right? Hollywood Hogan right here. We're starting Degeneration X. Yes, Sir Scar would make a wonderful Triple H. Wait, wait. So we're going to be the new dark powers and we need shirts. Yes. And, you know, Phineas has not yet made his bargain. He's literally – so uh, Phineas has to take some blame for this because the warlock, the relatively neutral warlock, has literally was in there like, look, guys, this is – we just got to make a great deal, okay? Let's just go – he's trying to touch every amber piece to find – And then he's window, sh- he's window shopping. He's talking yeah. it up to the other players like, ooh, you can get some You can get some pets over here. Come on down. <laughs> and he's that just, was offered, actually. Huh? Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if that wasn't like that, that Bonnie's character didn't go for that. I was like, this is like, this is like looking at fish in a barrel. It's not even shooting them. It's just looking at them. And and she was having none of it. She was having none of it. Wasn't she? Oh, I thought she was going to come down. I mean, okay, it's make a deal with a dark power that comes with a dark penalty. Phineas is a warlock. He already did that. He's like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Let's make a deal, brother. He's going around. He's bidding them. He's trying to put them against each other. He's just trying to make the best deal. And uh, his influence might have, uh, yeah, he might have helped influence the paladin and the barbarian down. Maybe oh. the wrong path. But I think he's what was it? What was the little guy's name in Degener and Degeneration X? Uh, Sticks Six. What was his name? Six Pack. Six Pack. Sting. Oh, X Pack. X Pack. Yes. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's kind of how I feel in this situation. He's a he's yeah. he's a little guy talking it up and kind of getting mouthy, but be, be yeah. behind Triple H in Hollywood Hogan. Man, suck. That's hilarious. Or is so, he showing we'll like this is a heartbreak kid? Before we get too too off on this, I was gonna come back to yeah. if you're offering a character an opportunity in your game to change their race, their class, all this stuff. You said, you know what? You're unhappy with this. And Dave said, just change characters. I feel that's a good method. But if they really want to keep that specific character and retool them, that is something you have to offer to everybody. I stand behind that principle. Otherwise, they'll be like, why the F am I limping through multi-classing when I could just change everything? And you know what? Sometimes when you're new in a game, then I see why. I would have made different choices. And sometimes that does make sense for keeping the table happy. Because, you know, we're all figuring it out together, especially if it's your first time, you know, playing in the system. But, um... That's a great point. And, and I often have allowed that. Like when people ask me to make changes like that, I have no problem usually letting people change characters or make tweaks if they're not happy with it, especially when we're just first starting. I mean, uh, actually, the, the wizard has been who left and came back as the bard. 
Scott had mentioned that to me that he might change characters. I'm like, yeah, sure, fine, whatever, whatever makes you happy, dude. Because you don't yeah. know what the game's gonna be like when you're coming into it and making that character. I want to come back to a, uh, something from back in the day, and Whoa, uh, back in the day with Damn Tony, there uh, was the module, one of the most awesome of all time, the Throne of Bloodstone, where you uh, went into the abyss and you came across Demogorgon. You went back to his lair of the abyss, and he realized you were going against one of his opponents, Orcus. They were dynamically opposed as villains. And he says, guys, welcome to my palace. Nice to meet you all. I'll grant any one of you a wish. No strings attached. And everyone's like, no, 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 no. He's like, no shit. Seriously. No strings. I'm dead serious. I'll grant you a freaking wish. And you go on your way and just kick Orcus in the teeth for me. And... If in the mechanics of the game, if you accepted one of Demogorgon's wishes, it brought you one step closer to evil. Now, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. That that as a whole, there's a whole you know debate in there. Like I'm receiving. That sounds like a baggage. string is attached. That sounds like a string and a pretty hefty one that's attached. <laughs> but again, he's would probably lie. But uh, for a weapon that can kill Orcus. You would have probably increased an ability score or increased the power of a weapon or something like that, something to that effect. But uh, in this case, my character was influenced by uh, deity, this power, whatever it was in uh, the Amber Temple. Would he have instantly become evil? Well, I mean, magically, you could do that. And if it happened to me, quite honestly, I would have had to roll with it. No one put a gun to my character's head and said, accept this power. Yeah. But that's the thing, like, that's where, for me, that's where it went. Because I knew that something like this would, I knew this was in, in the adventure, obviously, right? Um, but I I had thought about it, and I don't like, one, I don't like the idea, because you can, it can happen if you get cursed with lycanthropy as well. You turn into a werewolf, you turn evil, and then they often say, you know, the DM then takes the, the character. I think that's bullshit, no, you know? Yeah, I think no, there's something... Something really cool about the player starting to play with that if they want. But I I think the way in which you get them to play with that is more of the reality of the situation. Nobody touched, and oh my God, I'm immediately evil. Even the one ring of power didn't immediately turn you fucking evil. It just started to corrupt and to corrupt. And, and it was that it was that transformation that was the cool thing of the story. In terms of ideal. I want, like for Sir Scar, let's say he's the, let's say he, he takes the Oathbreaker, right? And he's currently covered in, in oily black fur as well. I don't get that, but I want to It was weird. <laughs> Some of the flaws are really fucking weird. So, you know, what are you going to do? In essence, I think it's because these things are like these elder beings. So, like, the stuff is just, like, it's not even, it doesn't even make sense why you would have that, you know, but regardless. But I, I want that redemption story because that's, that's awesome game time, you know, for Scar to want to then return to Torag, you know, and to to reclaim his, you know, his oath of devotion at some point. Or just become like Arcan the Cruel and he's just straight up an Oathbreaker just rolling around the world like Hellboy, you know, or something like that. Um, I will say I want to go back to... Tony, something you kind of just you, you kind of just hit on, but I think it's like the the perfect old school uh, answer to this, which is multiclassing. Like that's where it came from. Was character runs into new information or new training or or new something in the story, and 
now they're learning how to fight with a sword. So now they're taking a multi-class with a with a martial character, right? I mean, multi-classing is like in its in its most pure form, that's all it is, is allowing for good storytelling with the character, right? That kind of comes back to what I said, though, about nothing's ever quite as cool as the rule-breaking. Players expect their characters to be able to multi-class without a narrative reason, which means when a character does it with a narrative reason, it doesn't quite have the same oomph. It's like, okay, I made a choice for a role-playing reason instead of a optimization reason. Fine. It's different when you as a DM just let them change something they couldn't normally change themselves. What could be an example of that, though, is giving them a free level. So, and actually this, uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but Bonnie is, um, she, oh, you get a free you level. Give her like in essence an extra free level in Warlock or something. You get a free level in Warlock when you take, when, when you, uh, when, when you start moving up the Garanathwa path. Oh my God. Uh, I hope, that's funny. I was give her a free level in my game. Stop listening. Happen. Well, stop wandering. Stop listening. That's You're actually so, so, so that is <laughs> one of the things you guys did not really put together about uh, about Art Kang, the Arakokra monk with the staff of power. You don't. You, you probably aren't aware of this at a meta level, but the staff of power needs to be used by a wizard, sorcerer, or warlock. Art Kang is a monk, from what you can tell. He is able to use the staff of power because of his affinity with Mothway. He's got the free level. Uh, so uh, that's yeah, yeah. So that's that's, that's cool. sort of um, that is part of that. Like I think if you give them something for free, it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to give them like the hit points or the proficiency bump up, but you can give them the benefits of a first level character otherwise. So you don't need to give them a level, although maybe you can. But you can give them the benefits as if they had a level in this class. Uh, that's kind of a played with that before in in, in uh, fifth edition. The other thing is like, you know, I I do feel like it's a different thing you know when a character takes a level in another class it's cool it's great sometimes the character the, the player makes it part of the backstory sometimes they don't you kind of have to let everyone do it so it's never going to be quite that special because whether one player does it for role-playing reasons and another player does it for an optimization reason it's just kind of part of the normal run-of-the-mill game if you really want to make it special, I would argue it helps to break the run of the mill game. So this goes back a long way, though. Dave, you mentioned multiclassing is the way to traditionally do this. I would argue if you're going back to first edition, you're looking more at things like the helm of opposite alignment. The there was also, I believe, a helm of opposite gender. So you're girdle. talking two girdle of opposite gender. So you're talking two first edition items that could boom, you put it on and snap. Your character is totally different. Opposite alignment, opposite gender. Bob becomes, you know, uh, a barb, <laughs> and 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 you go on with the game, which was a bigger deal in the '80s. Trust us, it's different now. In the '80s, that was a very. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking the old days here. Um, so that those mechanically have been in the game, and I remember one of the it wasn't Nodwick, it was one of the other comics that mentioned, man, there must be one mean haberdasher running around to have all these weird. Uh, you know, cursed objects running around in the game. Those mechanics are in there, so I think it's okay to dip into them for narrative reasons. You just need to make sure the players are going to be okay with it. And sometimes the players should be in on it. Like, sometimes maybe it's their idea and you want to run with the idea they want to have. But you want to bring that... You, 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 if you want to make something feel cool, it helps to break out of the normal mechanics of the game, but you got to make sure the players are cool with it. Well, Tony, uh, answer this. I mean, because you kind of... We've talked about it before, but the idea with Hawk and uh, the wrestling rules that I kind of cobbled together mm. a little bit, right? But Tony made the good point, too, that it wasn't just for Hawk, though. These were, in essence, 
the wrestling rules in this world. So if somebody wanted to spend the time to learn, they could do these things. Tony, is that kind of did I get that correct? I mean, How you that's absolutely correct that? because let's just be honest, five E wrestling rules. Well, almost all of D D wrestling rules have always been weak. The second edition rules were preposterous. I, I mean, it's a hard mechanic to get right. It really is. It's hard to develop a good wrestling system. You, you don't want to recreate chess, but you don't want to have to refer to uh, a ridiculous chart where if you roll a one, you give them a pile driver. And it actually, was wrestling was extremely ineffective in the, some of the earlier systems. We just kind of just, you know, ran with it. A point Thorne made was that when uh, Bonnie kind of went into this whole worship thing of the evil deity who she's, you know, in denial believes this is a a loving, wonderful deity. But that's another another entire sidebar conversation there. Yeah, a storm isn't evil. It's just what it is. I'm banging my head against the wall. It's okay. So... Good, uh, bad, I'm the goo with the tentacles. <laughs> yeah. In the situation when she was in uh, my campaign with Dave and one of the plot threads was she would have had to have sacrificed her life to save Roderick. Had she made the ultimate sacrifice, I had a narrative way to bring her back and I would have re- rewarded her. She was multi-class with a multi-class level. Like I would have allowed her to push that power. She didn't have a lot of levels in that, so that would have helped her along that path. My point here is that if you're going to do a narrative change to a character, uh, especially if it's one that may feel questioned about it, you kind of have to sweeten the pot. So yes, Dave changed my character uh, outlook. My guy, Hulk Hogan, is now Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Now he's <laughs> a heel all of a sudden. But I feel like I was properly bought, to be perfectly honest. I look at what he gave me, and I'm like, wow. Dude, well, I'll tell you what, what you uh what you get from that dark uh that dark gift is is pretty balls out. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty and, balls you know, out. And even you know, look up talk go back to when you turned Cassidy into a pile of bugs. That's the like the real the 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 absolutely nutty, I have completely wrecked your character. Good luck getting a date. And I'm looking at this character, I'm like, I can't die. Right. Like the rogue. Ha ha! <laughs> my rapier, I've impaled you, and I'm laughing at his face. I'm like, I'm a million bugs, jackass. I believe he was he, you fucking kill me. He was like immune to crits. He was like immune to a lot of damage. He also had permanent illusion ability. Like you 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 were a pile of bugs, but you could always look like any human you wanted I to. I was a formless lich. I had all kinds of damage resistances. I I was given all sorts of eldritch powers. (laughs) You became like a CR-18 player character. Seriously, like I was in a completely... You had legendary actions. Yeah, so I'm I'm a disgusting, horrible abomination that nobody's aware of. Right. But holy crap, I'm like, I can still spin this. I'm like, so yes... Big change, but I but I felt like the pot was sweetened. There was you came to the table with some things. So I mean, I guess what we're really saying is, if you're going to force the big narrative mechanical change on a player, you got to bribe them with some cool shit. You gotta yeah. Bribe yeah. them with some cool shit. I mean, because yeah. it, it should be cool. Like whatever you're doing should be fun to play through. We don't want to lose sight of that. You know, you don't want to be kind of be the hard case about it. Of okay, well you just got to play through your consequences of your actions. Yeah, you do, and maybe there's some downside, but they should also unlock something that's fun to do. It's got to be fun. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. I will say on the other side, too, as players, if you're doing things like that, 
even as simple as multi-classing, because Thorne, as you said, anybody can do multi-classing. Yes, under the DM's discretion, too. And for me, if I'm running a game, the way that I want people to approach me with that, because I have no problem that they want to do that. Yeah. Why? Why are you? Give me a sweeten the deal for me by telling me why you're doing so. Did Hannibal the Cannibal Moon Druid uh, completely uh, extrally optimize his build? Absolutely. By taking a level in Barbarian to get the rage, the rage capacity, right? Um, that was fine by me. But what you did also is you gave a reason. This oh, yeah. is why he is. And it fit within the entire concept that you had brought to the table originally. So I was like, absolutely. I think that's great. So you got something cool that you got to play with. And it didn't just completely, as Tony says, break my continuity. It, it made yeah. sense. Like I said in the beginning, if it makes sense for the character and not just I'm tired of playing something, you know, because there are other ways to handle that. But if they're, if they're wanting to make a character change, where is that coming from? The same reason is why did you choose to be a fighter in the first place? Why are you from this land? There's reasons for that. Build that out, you know, help me to build that world. Now, I agree with you in principle. In the way, if it was, if every player was the kind of player I think they should be, that's the way it would be. That's the kind of player. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) And that is the kind of player I am. Whenever I see, hey, there's something cool I want to play with, I'm not going to do it if it doesn't make sense for the character. I'm going to come out with why, I'm going to come up with why it makes sense for the character. I'm going to do it from, okay, that's cool. I want to play with it. Here's how this fits this dude. And I'm going to write, and I'm going to build the story there. But I have DM'd players who didn't want to deal with that. And as much as we've talked about how that can be kind of a pain in the ass and a little bit of a, of a joy kill for the DM, you're a DM like me, the problem was making them take the the, the narrative part of it was a joy was a, a kill joy for them. And I kind of regret that. Like, so it's like, that's how I want players to play D&D, but not every player is coming in for the same motivations. They're not coming in for the same reasons. They're not approaching it the same way. And if I had it to do true. over again, I would let players do things for more mechanical reasons with light fluff more than I have forced them to in the past because, you know, I feel like it made the game less fun for some people. And that's not really worth the trade-off, even if that's the way I think D&D has played its best, you know? I think that's valid. I think that's valid. Yeah, I just, for for me, thankfully, for the most part, any time that that type of stuff has come up, it's been with people that can handle it, yeah. you know? So, you know. I would say, our, like, all I'm of our blessed, groups right now, <laughs> all of our groups are down. Everyone's yeah, down, you know? Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, kind of curate your group. You know, you start to curate groups a little bit, right? You can get lucky and be in a, D, be a DM and be in a group and everybody's super cool and they're down. That's exactly right and it's fantastic. And we've gotten some feedback from DMs and they're like, ah, oh, this would never have happened in my group. Well, maybe it wouldn't have. But I've played in a lot of groups, and I gotta tell you, what flies in one group does not fly in yeah. another one. And that is for app. If you can count on anything, that's the truth. There are players where if you made like a change, like a Dave, if you changed their alignment, they would have flipped friggin' shit, sure, sure, and sure. you would have no, acted like that. you crashed their car. <laughs> it's like, dude. So just to beat this, uh, let's beat this horse completely dead for one last round. <laughs> I, I will that? say from from all of the different groups and and people and everything that I've, I've run for, some of that I think can come about too if you're starting it out in a certain way where you're kind of setting the the bar for what you're what you're looking for as when you're running the game. I think that can sometimes 
head things off the pass. I'll say like that's what I started with the session zero that I ran for the Rhyme and Frost Maiden group with a lot of bunch of newbies, right? Um, was I kind of set it up in this very what do you want? Why are you here? What do you want to do? You know, and I kind of I I would couch them with these questions so. So their first experience is that exploration of this character as opposed to, oh, well, how's the best way that I swing this sword? You know, so anyway, just that's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. You want the first. You, and if you can set the tone there that you're exploring your character, you can keep that tone throughout the rest of the game. Uh, the only thing I would look, I would the only caveat I would give is I've had some players who when asked that are like, I want to explore these mechanics. I want to treat this like a card game or a minis game, and I want right. to explore these mechanics, and I don't right. want a lot of weight of narrative, which yeah. is a matter of knowing your players in your table and maybe curating some. But you know, you just got to you have to you have to understand who you're playing with. Do you want to be playing with them? And if you do, how do you make sure you can get what you want and they still have fun? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, in that case, then I think we take Dave's approach, and then you're just playing a lot of characters. Then, all right, you, you you have a character. You've already made some changes to this character now. You want to make more changes? Okay, well, your character, without getting nutty and, you know, changing this uh, character around like a chameleon, maybe we just introduce another character and leave this character at the te- – this this uh, this fighter in uh, the inn, and we bring in this cavalier and let you try that. Maybe you bring the fighter back. So – in the in the Slavers Bay campaign, that actually kind of kind of happened almost like it was it was thrown out there to me from Kevin, who plays the Swiper, the Rogue. Uh, well, r- fuck Rogue, the Thief. He's he's a your <laughs> he's your classic Mold Bay Cook A D and D Thief. Um, but he uh, he brought his uh, another friend in uh, Rob to play to fill a seat that we had and. Uh, Rob's character's backstory had a certain certain people in it, blah blah blah, and they were obviously talking. So Kevin had approached me uh, on the side at one point and be like, "Hey, if you ever need to kill one of us, just kill me, because I'm going to come back as a wizard, because then I could be the wizard in Rob's story." And I was like, "Okay, that's cool, man. I'll see. if it happens, I'll let you know." Like, but I wasn't going to like set up his assassination, but like you know, if it happens, you know. That's I'll, actually I'll, pretty cool. I'll try to target you. <laughs> I do like a good conjoined backstory among player characters. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you know, perhaps the perhaps the character that we haven't even touched on, the character that most reflects this concept, which is the the character I brought to one of your games, Tony, where the character was basically split personality. He randomly woke up as one of three totally different characters every morning. Uh, yes, that uh, was yeah. well. He was one of his names was Rockford. He was yeah. a sword mage Gensai. And I, I gave you a merit of reason. You touched a relic in one of my dungeons. And the side effect of this was you ended up, and I have actually used this concept a couple times, where you basically had multiple souls. Yeah. So, yes, you were this character. You were the Earth Gensai sword mage. But you were also a monk. And you were also, I want to say, a mage. Was it a psionicist, maybe? Was it? I don't think it was a mage. Because part of my impetus was I had played a mage before. I was trying to be things I hadn't been. Was kind of part of what had drawn me to it. And I pitched this to Dave, actually. Originally, I had pitched the idea that Hannibal was going to be able to shift into totally different characters. Which we kind of killed, because that is a little bit advanced for a first-time DM. Uh, but it would have been pretty neat. You know, we kicked it around. 
And that is because uh, this character, literally, he rolled a die and he woke up as a different character every morning in the game. If we long rested middle of the game, boom, I roll a die. So let's see what character comes out now. Yeah, Thorin did try to uh, float that to me as well. He's like, hey, would you mind running a, a game with a bunch of people you don't know for the first time? And uh, yeah, so I'm thinking about being four characters at once. <laughs> like, wait, 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 wait. wait. Seems reasonable. <laughs> We're not changing our backstory. <laughs> we actually uh funny enough in um they never they never actually did sit down to play with us unfortunately they did one session when i was doing i was trying to set up that west marches campaign with bonnie's family that literally i said one session but her nephew and his girlfriend wanted to play initially when we were first starting to get together and his girlfriend was still in school at the time i think or was living far away so she wasn't always there every weekend so they had an idea that um in essence it would be like this dimensional like they would swap out you know like so the time she could be there all of a sudden she would appear because she was kind of like linked to him or something i was like that's kind of it's a cool concept especially mechanically for scheduling you know (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's basically the way we we handled the ranger who couldn't be there every session was okay this session he's she's here Next session, she's off chasing the the, the local flora and fauna. She's off chasing dinosaurs. Doing ranger stuff. Yeah, absolutely. She's off exploring the woodland she's never seen before. I mean, (laughs) all these things are a lot of fun, and I do encourage players and DMs to try them. It's just a matter of making sure everyone's comfortable with the way you try them, right? So, (laughs) you know, within this, what tips do you have for making this work? Like, or, or what makes it not work? Uh, well, I guess this depends. Is this a player who's approaching the DM and saying, hey, I want to do a vast character change uh, and how the DM wants to deal with that? If we're in a situation where they want to present a very light story reason surrounding that, um, does the DM allow this? And how do you go about this without making it look like, you know, and I've actually seen this happen in games where a character basically went in the changing booth at the mall and came back and they're not wizard anymore. They're a ranger. And everyone's like, what? You know. That's not good. That really, that's <laughs> weak. And at that, at that point, you know, like where it has to be the suspension of disbelief. There has to be, you know, there has to be that, like you're hold, you're holding the continuity together, so it's just not so far off the table. You're like looking at the graph paper. So if you're like, you do a big character change like that, there's got to be some narrative reasons, even if the DM does the legwork on that, is my point. I mean, specifically regarding what Jared was kind of asking, because he was talking about, uh, he originally thought about it with the Oath of Vengeance Paladin and the idea of subclasses within within the different classes. So that's kind of easy, I, in my opinion. Now, for me, I think it needs to be, like I said, I think it needs to make sense for the character. So is there a reason that they are... Like Sir Scar, right? Is there a reason that he would become an Oathbreaker? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, big one, right? Uh, Sir Morton, is there a reason that he's Oath of Vengeance now? Could he become an Oath of Devotion? Yeah. And what I would do in that case, I would just be like, okay, swap out your subclass stuff. Because the one of the, we've talked about this at length, one of the beauties of 5e, the balance is built in. So you're going to be just as powerful as a ninth level Oath of Devotion Paladin as you are as a ninth level Oath of Vengeance Paladin. You're just going to be powerful in a different way. You're going to have certain things on, on this side that you don't have on this side, but that it doesn't, I don't care, you know? If you want to multi-class them, no, no problem. The stuff is all there. For me, that's up to DM discretion to a degree. You know, someone says, I'm just going to multi-class in Wizard now. 
I mean, like, and, and you learn spells where, you know? This guy spent the last 30 years learning fucking spells. You learn them in a week, you know? like. Well, uh, I took a dip in Barbarian. It was like a, a three-credit class. <laughs> um, now, you could also then go Tony's route, like he did in Storm Kings, where he wasn't changing us in terms of, we didn't come to him and say, we want to change our characters or, or our subclass or anything like that. But what he was doing is he was adjusting the playing field by giving out his wacky homebrewed things, right? Like the gift of the blessing of the stone father and these types of things to help us feel more powerful, to help us get juiced up for the adventure, for to, to be powerful enough so we didn't just completely get aced, right? Which I, I think is what he was kind of worried about in the beginning. So that's a way you could do it as well. But if it's that, like Tony did, that's where you then have to open it up to everybody because you can't just be giving special goodies to one person. You know, swapping out a subclass is one thing. Uh, you know, giving brand new powers that don't exist, I think, is something else entirely. You know what's funny? Because in the game that Cassidus was in, he was the only one who had the opportunity to get that kind of power. But I did give other players the chance to tell me what they wanted. No one else wanted something like that. And you could mm. argue Cassidus didn't either. <laughs> but Cassidus <laughs> at least was going for the power. Um, I did have one other. I, did, I didn't I did open the door specifically to, hey, you can all get a transformation like this. And in fact, they didn't even know he was transformed for quite some time. But what I did say was, you know, yeah, Cassidus is getting access to some cool books. And Cassidus did pick up one of the Vecna items, the, the hand or the eye of Vecna, through that campaign too. But I literally had talked to the other character, like, okay, like, what do you want? Like, the one dude was like, you know, hey, here's this airship. I want an airship. And I was like, sure. And you guys found the airship, like, two <laughs> sessions later, and that airship is how they dropped Cthulhu the first time. They flew it into its head. You know, it's, you know, you do uh, want to, I don't know if it's a matter of necessarily saying, hey, you know, everyone can change the character this way. I think it's a matter of talking to your players, understanding your players, and giving them the chance to come to you with the things they would want to do. And then enabling them or not, depending on how well you can fit them in and, and how balanced you think it is with everything else going on. And nine times out of ten, you enable them. You know, you open it up, let them play. Unless it's like your first campaign, then maybe keep it tight and, and don't let anyone have a good backstory because you don't want to deal with it. Yeah. But if you're going to throw out the cool rule-breaking things that, you know, are, are especially the memorable ones, the, thi the thing that, where you uh, cast this guy's change – and he got all his cool goodies. Yes, he made a sacrifice, but nothing was really where he was running the table. He was more difficult yeah. to take out. He would have been more difficult to destroy, so he had more longevity. Like Erasmus, okay, so he turned into a storm giant. Dun, dun, dun. What happened with him? Well, he has more hit points. He's stronger. Do you see Erasmus doing melee attacks all the time? No, you don't. He's I mean, still a wizard, right? He's still a wizard. He, he's still a wizard. He doesn't have multi-attack. He, he now so he did throw a giant chair out the through the wall in Lord Hommeldale's estate to let the sunlight in though. So well, screw that, that was a pretty unwizardly thing to do. He did literally fling it through the fucking wall like the Hulk. So yeah, that was yeah, that's the outside the norm. <laughs> well, you know, the fighter could have got there first, but it just how it played out. So, but I mean, how do you, you know, if you want to do these things, like, how do you balance them? How do you make it work out mechanically? I mean, I know what I did with Erasmus. With the, and actually, I did this with Erasmus and with the Larval Mage. In both cases, I took a look at the monster entry. I took a look at 
what was the power level that the character had access to at the point they were. I benchmarked against the kind of those spells of that level, specifically spells that character had access to. And I kind of worked out the power levels that way. So what they were getting might add some options. It might add some effectively fireballs, like Erasmus can cast a couple extra fireballs, essentially. Although the lightning fireballs. But like I balanced it that way to make sure it wouldn't be game-breaking. And that's important when you're going to do that. Whenever you're going to kind of go off book. Now, it's one thing if you're going with the Oath of Vengeance or the Anti-Paladin or the Oathbreaker Paladin subclass, because Watsi's already balanced that for you, theoretically. Yeah. Although yeah. they did bury it in the DMG, and it doesn't look like they did a ton of playtesting on it. But you know, they've done that. If you're doing something totally, all, totally out of the book, totally from your own mind or adapting something, you're going to want to put some balancing work in there to benchmark it. You know, what... What is a reasonable amount of damage? And, you know, you don't want to set it against the biggest spells available. You want to benchmark it against something that's a little more average because you don't necessarily want to introduce more of the biggest possible spells that level can throw around. When uh, you turned me into a Storm Giant, it wasn't poorly received. That wasn't an issue where people were like, oh, my God, you've broken everything. I mean, if you turned him into an actual Storm Giant, it was a CR 13 monster at a 29 strength that was hitting for 6 to 36 plus 9... With his multi-attack, yeah, that would have people were like, "Wow, wow, man, that that town guard's guts are all, all over those trees from one club attack." <laughs> but he's, I would say that you could add if you're gonna do something like that too. There is abilities you can give out that are very flavorful that don't wreck things. Like Erasmus as a storm giant was aquatic, so he could breathe water. That was neat, but it, it, it added the feel to the character. But it was like, oh my god, he can breathe water like Aquaman. Like, there's no way I can catch up with this character. I mean, and like from a balancing point of view, there's plenty of items that let you breathe water. There's a first level spell that lets you breathe water. I'm not concerned well, no, about it, you know? Erasmus and Storm Kings, it didn't matter anyway, because Roderick would just cast water breathing every single day as yeah. a ritual. So we all had it. Just for the rest think, of the campaign. You want to think about it that way. You want to think about, okay, can I give this to the character or is it going to be something that the game just wasn't built to handle? And if you can see, hey, you know, I could easily give them an item with the same ability or there's a first or second level spell that does it. You don't worry about it too much. Don't overdo it. Don't give them 20 things like that. Otherwise, you don't. You, you, they're never going to think an item's cool. But one or two things that you know you could easily give them an item to do the same thing, fine. So they don't have to attune to it. It's not a big deal. All three of us have done it in a in a different way in our recent ones. Uh, yeah. Thorne, you obviously benchmarked out monster classes or you know storm giant things like that to then create a character. Tony, you took apart staff of power to create the artifacts in yeah. the Storm King's Thunder campaign, and I looked at what martial characters like monks could do in terms of their hits and stuff, and adapted some of that along with the barbarian. Uh, skills to create a set of of wrestling rules, you know, or or how the wrestling might might work, you know. So if you're within the system and you're playing within the system, most of that is already there, and you can start to just play around with those things. Yeah, exactly. And not, not worry about breaking it completely, you know. Or maybe you do, but that's how you learn, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, the most fun campaigns break some things. The problem is the worst campaigns break too many things. I'm mm. still waiting on my plus 50 sword. Ah, uh, yeah, the, the sword that cannot miss. That was the one that was, that was, yeah, I broke the clock and I went, oh, all those gears are supposed to be inside, inside the <laughs> body. That's the problem. I thought it was all these extra gears they gave you. 
I actually have a clock. My great-grandfather had worked on the, on the Eastern PA Railroad. I think it might have been Amtrak for enough years where he got a clock. And these are actually really cool atmospheric clocks. The clock, if it's set correctly, never needs to be wound. It is powered by changes in atmospheric pressure. Uh-huh. Unfortunately... I got it long after it fell. Like, they're delicate because they need to be balanced just right, and, and it's never worked. Like, it had stopped working long before I got it. So it's sitting there as a large paperweight and perhaps a project for when I'm in my twilight years of how do I fix this thing. You know, they're not cheap to fix either, but apparently if you can get them running, actually they're worth something. And it reminds me of that, right? It's like, it isn't quite that carefully balanced, but you just want to make sure you don't break something in such a way that the clock stops working properly. You there know, you it all kind of goes on its own. It's all self-running. You don't need to wind it, but you just want to make sure you don't unbalance things in a way where now it doesn't do that because it's not like you can t- change it to a wind-up clock it doesn't it just doesn't work yeah so but, and, and in terms of things like if you're playing within the, the bounds of the rules as they are and not even creating anything but just playing around with things like multi-classing or or, or swapping out subclasses you're literally going to have no issue with that at all you know, aside from maybe like the coffee lock, like Thorin has talked about, but that usually takes a level of, uh, of nitty grittiness in the rules to be able the to find I, I hear they've nerfed the coffee lock too. I haven't looked into it, but I understand like Tasha's or uh, Xanatar's uh, nerfed it somehow. Okay. Sorry, Bonnie. Well, if, if you're going to uh, customize a character and give them abilities and you want to add some things to it, like I think I've said before in a previous podcast, there's different places you can look at their character sheet and you could fill in some of their weaknesses without making them super powerful. Like giving someone an extra plus one to their charisma save is nice, but still, if you're not proficient in it, you're probably going to blow that save. You see, I like having the weaknesses. I like having something to target. Oh, you still will. You know, I think uh, Hawkey blew his charisma save in Dave's game. He's actually got a decent charisma. He was near Dave, uh, Sir Scarcer had an extra like, plus he two for the save, and he, he still tanked it. It just happens. You can't account <laughs> for when that when the die shits the bed. Yeah, beautifully right. so. Dave's just happy he can start twisting us and and, and, and turning us. If Phineas is still running around, like, come on, give me a dark gift. Come on, what do you got? What do you guys got? You're looking to make a deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, the, uh, I'm willing to sell my guys. soul. I'm just waiting for an appropriate fee. <laughs> soul for auction. Come on, what do you got? Papa needs a new pair of spells. What could possibly go wrong with that scenario? Here's, here's my here's my second prediction. The players kill each other off. This is how this ends. They all like wipe each other out because we're all batshit crazy from these dark powers we picked up. You know and Strahd's gonna, like, what a, the, the, the thing that's going to be crazy is when you guys realize that you can accept more than one. I think that'd be a very bad idea. Vinny's <laughs> having a hard maybe. time choosing between two already. <laughs> Give me a baker's dozen. <laughs> As like long as it doesn't, as long as it doesn't overcome his pretty face. So long, so long as he can still shape change. He doesn't want to lose his other gifts. Yeah, you guys are gonna get these and then go roll Strahd hard. I think we're like, this is our fucking castle now. Now we're the vampire. Now we're the vampire. <laughs> All right, guys, we've been going on for a little bit here. Let's get to uh, what are your final thoughts about using mechanical changes, character changes to reinforce narrative changes? Well, if you're the DM and you're looking to make a character change. Uh, whether they kind of brought that on themselves or this is a plot twist you can't wait to drop. Uh, as Dave would always keep bringing up, because it's a good point, know your room, know your players, you know, don't do anything that's driving too crazy. If it's going to be a little questionable, sweeten the pot there. Give them mm-hmm. something to work with. When Hawk has made his trip down the dark side, he looked at that and said, yeah, you know what, but that was totally worth it. <laughs> you, you don't want to be like, oh, man, I've ruined my character. It's like, you know what? No, I could work with this. 
This is crazy, but I can work I can, with it. I can start wearing some boas. I can wear boas. Black. Yeah, I don't have to just rip my shirt off. I can wear boas. I can wear I can wear black and I can you know um, dye my dye my hair beach uh, blonde white blonde. Yeah, I'm sure uh-huh. an artificer can help with that cosmetic change. So my point uh, remains the same as it was uh, in the very beginning. As long as it makes sense for the character, I don't mind at all if people are bringing things to the table as to I like my character to move in this direction, and you know whether that's multi-classing, swapping out subclasses, maybe, you know, finding artifacts or certain gifts or something that allow that. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, because, one, that's also showing how the players really, really invested in the character, the game, the story. But if they're just tired of playing with something, then I would I would strongly urge you to have them, that character goes off to, to do some stuff, you know, they got to go check with their order or whatever, and New character comes in, you get to play with that a little bit. Your other person is still out there in the wings whenever they need to come back. I mean, to me, I'd repeat what I said, which is that, you know, there are certain beats in the story that the best way to really reflect them, the best way to make it memorable is to do something outside of the book rules, which means, you know, instead of telling a player, hey, you can take that as a as a multi-class you just give them something or you just let them make a change or you, or, or you let them or force them to change alignment or change character classes, or you just give them something flat out, give them something like the, the whole God and alpha worship in, in uh, Woodstock wanderers as players sacrifice souls to God and alpha, they get boons. And actually there are some rules in the DMG. Like don't overlook your DMG in this case. Mm. Your DMG has your Oathbreaker Paladin in there. It has other kinds of uh, monster templates and character templates that you can apply that'll help you with this that Watsi's already worked through. It has a whole section on boons and alternative rules and things like honor and things like uh, like sanity. So you can dip into those things in the DMG and apply those to kind of create this sense of mechanical shift that reinforces your narrative shift. And I think it's a good idea. You know, make sure you understand the game. Make sure you're, you're... that you've got the basic mechanics well enough that you can do this and you're not going to ruin anything. But once you're there, you know, make the make the changes, add the things that really bring the narrative to life. And that includes letting or perhaps suggesting or negotiating major changes with the characters. You know, maybe that paladin does become an Oathbreaker. The big tricky thing is make sure your players are into it. You know, you really, especially when I was younger, I took the attitude of, hey, whatever the DM says goes. And I still kind of do that. But when you're talking about this stuff, talking about changing characters, you need the player buy-in. So make sure you have it. Make sure they're down for whatever you want to do. Maybe talk to them about it ahead of time. Make sure they want to play that character because your players are invested in these characters. And if your player brings you an idea, have an open mind to it because for the same reason, they're invested in that character. And if they want to do something cool with it, help them do it if you can. So those are my final thoughts. Guys, I think we went fairly off book there. uh, Good show. Thanks a lot for doing it with me. Good stuff. Um, No, we we answered Jared's question and then some. And then I think so. Jared, we hope that answers your question. We hope that uh, that gives you plenty to work with. Because believe me, we've all kind of gone way off book on some of these things and broken some of the mechanics in order to make our games, as we say in the beginning, as cool as they can be. So, Jared, thank you very much for sending in that question. And for all of you listening from home, thanks again for listening in to another episode of Three Wise DMs. If you have your own question you would like us to answer, please go to the threewisedms.com website, where, by the way, we post an article every week, too, so you get twice as much content. And you can enter your question into the What's Your Problem field. You can also send us the question at threewisedms at gmail.com, or you can talk to us on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram. We're very active on all those channels. If you like what you're hearing, we'd really appreciate it if you could smash that five-star rating button, give us a review on your podcast platform, share it with your friends. We really appreciate all the support. You guys are how we've been growing, and it's great. So thank you very much for all the love you've shown us there. We'll catch you next week on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.